2: This is Eat, Sleep, Work, Repeat, a wicked podcast on happiness and work culture. Morning. I changed the front bit because Rebecca at my work tells me she always thinks I say wicked. So I did say wicked. Hello. Where are we? So over the the last few weeks, punctuated a bit by Christmas, we've, we've looked really into... Uh, Some of the the big themes that are going on in work at the moment, there was an episode we did on the, the Me Too movement, there was a review of last year with Andre Spicer. The next two episodes are very specifically back to two experts, and they're two experts who don't necessarily come from a perspective of psychology or organisational behavioural study, but they come from the perspective of aggregating loads of other work to try and understand the sum total of learning. Next up is going to be Daniel Coyle, who's written this book that you might be starting to see on tables in bookshops called The Culture Code. The first... 50, 60, 70 pages of that left me breathless with excitement of about what he discovered. And actually, we're, it's going to be a fantastic episode where really I, I put those things to him. Today's episode is a discussion with someone we had on the show back in September, and that's Dan Pink. Daniel Pink, obviously the writer of Drive, he, one of the, the best books he wrote for me was A Whole New Mind. Uh, he's also written to Sally's Human. And he's got this just fantastically rich new book out called When. And when is this study of time and how when we do things has an impact on our lives? So when you go into this book it's it's littered with just hundreds of examples and actually to my to my mind one of the things you discover in this book is that Kids, teenagers, would do better at school if they were allowed to start an hour, an hour and a half later. That's really fascinating for me because in a world where every school is obsessed with grades, where every parent is sort of twitching about the postcode of their local schools and whether they'll get into the best school, the idea that schools could shift their results up in maths and and certain analytical subjects, they could shift their results up a couple of grades by allowing kids to come in later, just seems to be like this massive conundrum of where the conservatism of the world, the conservatism of what we do, restricts some just genuine common sense. Also when Dan Pink then starts going into evidence about people in courtrooms are more likely to be convicted in the afternoon or before breaks, you start realizing that when we do things has a big material impact on the, the sort of the consequence on the outcomes of what we do. So that said Those things are obviously big and significant, but there's also a lot of trivial changes that affect when you're at your most creative, when you should do meetings, when you should reply to things. Dan was in town this week promoting his book. I headed down to catch up with him down at King's Cross. His new book is When, a scientific study into the impact of time. Think you'll really enjoy it. I, I audio booked it like all these things. It was an enlightening excursion into how we could actually impact work and change work just by reordering our day and trying to to do things in a different way here's dan dan you're an incredibly reasonable person i can tell that through, <laughs> <laughs> through all of your work and, uh, and we've we've sort of discussed those things uh before right but if i was to start from a different position yeah There's reason to be pretty angry in this book, right? If I was to describe this as a dossier that had fallen into my hands that was explaining why people were dying, children Uh were failing exams, it's a pretty comprehensive takedown of the way we're living right now. So kick us off. Yeah. Why shouldn't I be angry about these things? Well, you should be a little bit angry about some of these
1: things, Bruce, because what this book, what this research tells us is that we're not taking questions of timing seriously enough. We're very intentional about what we do, we're intentional about who we do it with, we're intentional about uh, how we do it, but when it comes to questions of when we do things, we're haphazard, we don't take it seriously, and, and these questions of when matter, as you, as you indicate. Um, there are discernible patterns in when medical errors occur in hospitals, when physicians and nurses don't wash their hands in hospitals, there are discernible time-based patterns in how kids perform in school, they are discernible time-based patterns in how we perform on the job, and if we're just a little bit more aware of these things, uh, I think we can
2: we can live better, work better, and um, actually improve our health. So, so to take a step back and give yeah. it a proper introduction. Then, so when is this? Uh, I guess study into chronobiology, into the, the way that time and timing yeah. affects all these elements of our life. Yeah, well chronobiology is just one facet of what I'm writing about. What I'm talking
1: about are really all of the when decisions that we make in our life, from when in the day should we do certain kinds of work, to when in the day should we exercise, to when should we take breaks, but also timing in a broader sense too. What are the effects of beginnings on our behavior? What are the effects of midpoints on our behavior? What are the effects of endings in our behavior? How do groups synchronize in time? And I think there's one sort of ma- what's one ma- massive uh, point of view in this book. It's that human beings are temporal creatures and we move through time. And some, for some reason, we're not fully aware of that. And as a consequence, we are compromising our performance and maybe even compromising our happiness.
2: So on this podcast here, we've sort of talked a lot about it's, it's workplace happiness. And it's, okay. it's how we can be more effective at right. work and, right. and enjoy our jobs uh, more. And one of the things that we we, we laid out uh, just around the, the end of the year, we laid out an eight-point manifesto, and one of the points in that was take back your lunch. The importance of punctuating a day of graft with a proper break, and you you cover that in, with extensive research. Yeah. Do you want to just share sure. some of the, the findings? Sure. Has it made you ch- take a lunch more?
1: Yes. Uh, this book, more than any book I've written, has changed the way that, that I do things, Um. I think what you have, I, 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 again if you, my book here is not a philosophical take, it's a research based take. And if you look at the research on breaks in general, what they show very, very clearly is that we should be taking more breaks and we should be taking certain kinds of breaks. And lunch would be a subset of those kinds of breaks. The research on on lunch, to me, is very powerful. It suggests that people who take, as you say, a proper lunch, a lunch that is fully detached, a lunch that is not sitting at their desk uh, with a tuna salad sandwich answering their text messages, but actually away away from their desk doing something other than work, That has a boost to our emotional well-being. It has a boost to our productivity. It has a boost to our creativity. uh, It has a boost There's some fascinating research. It has a boost to our actual physical vigor, not only at that moment, but even a year later. And so, my view is that, is that breaks in general, lunch in particular, are where sleep was 15 years ago. You know, you remember 15 years ago, someone would come into the office claiming that he never slept, and we would look at that person as a hero. Now, then the science of sleep comes along, and we say, okay, you're an idiot, you're a fool for missing or out a liar. on your sleep. Yeah, yeah. you get more, yeah. um, You're a fool for missing out on your sleep. Um, I think that's where we are with breaks. And, and I, as we were talking about earlier, I was someone who, I didn't really, really take breaks very often. I, I had this view, this was a philosophy, it's not based on any research, that you power through. And that's completely wrong. And I, this is one of those areas where for 50 years I was doing it wrong. My belief was that amateurs took breaks and professionals don't. And it's completely, 100% the opposite. Amateurs are the ones who don't take breaks. Professionals take regular breaks and equally
2: important, certain kinds of breaks. I, I, I was chatting to a brilliant guy a couple of weeks ago and he said to me that he hates it but inside him he's got a nu- an 18th century mill owner who wants him at the 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 the, the, the loom at 9am uh-huh. and wants him to work uh-huh. through that and if other colleagues aren't at their looms at their yeah. desks yeah. he's like where is everyone uh, Exactly. and he says he hates this thing within him right. but it's, he finds it hard to shake it off, and lunch breaks seem exactly guilty of that. Absolutely. Whether it's the Gordon Gecko thing, whether it's. Lunches for Wimps? Yeah, there, there, there just seems to be something in us where we think by powering through, we're getting more done. It's- well,
1: we have to replace that 18th century mill owner with a 21st century social and biological scientist who was, that, that, that tells us very, very clearly that breaks are not a deviation from work, they're part of work.
2: So, the other epiphany that you seem to have reached is the power of napping. And so, it, it needs a, t- a trademark designation after it, but you've <laughs> so you've suggested this idea of a nappuccino. Yeah, yeah. That word, unfortunately, is not mine. That word right. had been floating around out there. <laughs> so, talk us through, because yeah. um, it feels deeply counterintuitive. It's very counterintuitive. And, and I've <laughs> not had the chance yet to test it out. You should, you've got to
1: test it out, this app. When we're done, just go back home, try a nappuccino. So, here's, so, take two steps back napping uh, there's some good research on napping napping is a restorative for for a lot of us but one of the troubles with napping for many people is is that is the duration if you nap the ideal nap t- to my surprise was is surprisingly short it's between about 10 minutes and 20 minutes um, what happens if you nap for longer than that is you begin to develop what's called sleep inertia which is that groggy foggy feeling that you get when you when you nap for you know an hour or something like that and you have to dig out of that before you get the restoration a 10 to 20 minute nap is ideal you get the restoration um, the the improvement to alertness without that sleep inertia Uh, but there's a way to enhance that and that's the the nappuccino and what you do is you actually have a cup of coffee before you nap and so what i do is i set my timer on my phone for 23 minutes Uh, i have a cup of coffee you know, have a cup of coffee, set my timer for 23 minutes. Then I just, you know, lie back in a, in a chair. Um, and I put on, um, uh, headphones to blot out the noise, close my eyes. And at this point I can usually fall asleep in I don't know, anywhere between six to 10 minutes. And so that gives me a nap of, you know, 12, 15 minutes right there in the window. And then my, my alarm goes off. I wake up But here's where the coffee comes in. It takes about 25 minutes for caffeine to hit our bloodstream. And so you wake up. You get that alertness from coming out of the nap for the ideal duration. And then on top of that, you get the hit of caffeine. And so that's the nappuccino. It's really the scientifically ideal
2: form of napping. And you've seen a benefit from it?
1: Oh, yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. I am not a regular napper. And there's some some good research showing that habitual nappers get more out of it. But if I have... um, if I have, I've taken one, I've only been here in London for a couple of days, a few days, and I, I did take one. Uh, I, I did a nappuccino on the, yes, the very first, no, I did two, I did, I did two. I did one on the first day I was here and one on the second day that I was here uh, because, of the, because of the jet lag. And so, um, yeah, so you have that a, have a cup of coffee, lie back and um, have that short nap. And it's, it's restorative without the downturn.
2: So you speak of of this natural rhythm that a lot of us have got, which is this peak trough and rebound. Right. Now, a lot of us have that. Some of us have that inverted. Right. And so the secret you've suggested in the book is is trying to find your own rhythm. Yes. And then complement patterns of behavior around that. Precisely. That's exactly it.
1: So we all have, so we tend to have these three stages of the day in general, peak trough recovery. As you say, Bruce, most of us go through in that order people who are strong night owls go through in the reverse order. And what the research tells us is that we should be doing certain kinds of work during each of those periods. So during the peak, which for most of us is the morning, but not everybody, for most of us is the morning. During the peak, we should be doing our analytic work, work that requires this intense heads down focus. So I'm analyzing data, I'm writing a report. Um, I, I, I do most of my serious, really almost all of my serious writing in the morning, because that's my, that's my peak period. During that period, we're able to bat away distractions. During the trough, this period in the early afternoon, that's when you know we have, there are a lot of car accidents, there are a lot of medical errors, there, um, there's a decrement to student test scores. Um, during that dip, we're better off doing what we all have to do each day, which is certain kinds of administrative work. Answering routine email, filling out expense reports, all that kind of garbage that a workday sometimes entails. Then during the recovery, where we have less vigilance but a higher mood we're, it's good, it's better to, we're better doing certain kinds of creative work iteration brainstorming and if we just make a, some small changes in our schedule or get our bosses to allow those small changes in our schedule
2: we can do a little bit better yeah that, that was the bit I was really fascinated by because to some extent when you look at it on paper you think this trough of, of cerebral power yeah. is going to be limiting but in fact you gave examples where people when they're in that sort of slightly distractible state yeah, yeah. There's, a, there's, a, there's more fluidity of their creative
1: thinking right this is something that these researchers call um some interesting research on this that the, these researchers call the inspir- two american researchers the, they call the inspiration paradox that we are uh, sometimes better at doing that creative kind of work during our non-optimal time not during the trough but during this recovery period. And, and the whole reason for that is this interesting combination where during that recovery, our mood goes back up. That's important. But we're less vigilant than during the peak. And so if you have higher mood but less vigilant, you're, as you just exactly as you say, we're a little bit looser. You're willing, if you want to do brainstorming, you want to let in a few distractions. You don't want to simply be vigilant and say, that's a stupid idea, that's a stupid idea. So the combination of elevated mood and a certain looseness makes it a good time for that
2: kind of work. I think there's an no important lesson when we're looking at work and how we can calibrate work to our to our needs. So if you've got a situation where a boss is going to be giving a yes or no on a proposal that you're giving. We can learn from court, actually. And actually, I remember in the Robert Cialdini book a few years ago, Influence, he says that uh, attractive people do better in court. And I think with the work that you've done in your book here, the best circumstance to find yourself in court is being attractive in the, mor- in the mornings. <laughs> the, the, the best, the
1: best circumstance is not being in court in the yeah. first place. The, um, yeah, no, this is some research out of Israel showing that judges are more likely to grant parole to parolees earlier in the day but also immediately after breaks um, and so and um and in terms of how we apply that if we're not up for parole it, it one of the things about human decision making is this when people make decisions they usually when people are confronted with a the decision they have to make there's often they often have a default decision and that default decision in many cases is no the default decision in parole is no you can't have parole you go to your boss with a request for a pay raise. No, you can't have a pay raise. You go to ask somebody out on a date. The default answer generally is no. Alright, and so how, when are people more likely to overcome the default? And that ends up being earlier in the day and immediately after breaks. Um, and you know this gives us some guidance on how to be slightly more, how to be more persuasive. And like all this stuff, Bruce, it, the, 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 getting the timing right doesn't guarantee you anything. But what we're talking here is improving your odds, all right? And that's all, we live in a probab- probabilistic universe here. So let's say that you have a, you know, um, you're gonna ask your boss for a pay raise. Maybe you only have a 7% chance of her saying yes in general. If you ask at the right time, maybe you can dial it up to 11% that, you're still probably not gonna get it, but your odds have just improved considerably. And that's what all of this is, is can we use timing to improve our odds, improve our chances?
2: yeah and, and so and so consequently in that, in that scenario maybe you get to the end of a meeting you say look before we make a decision let's should we grab a quick coffee or just trying I mean, to try, edu- that. Edu- cases. try that edge
1: but the other thing about it that, that you say is is and this is really important is to be more observant about our own behavior and about our own moods what's interesting you know you take a, a place like like any kind of company twitter anywhere else people do companies do all kinds of ab testing to see how their, their customers are gonna, are gonna react. We should be doing more A-B testing in our own lives. We should be saying, hey, you know what, I'm gonna try asking it this time of day, then I'm gonna try asking it this time of day and see, is there a difference? I'm gonna, and, and so what we need to do is we need to be, at some level, more scientific about ourselves. We need to be better observers about ourselves, when we feel energetic, when we feel on, when we're doing good work, when we're doing crappy work, and if we can just turn our sights a little bit more inward and be
2: observers of ourselves, that also is going to improve our odds so no it wasn't your focus but through the the lens of trying to look at work and how to make work sure. more productive and and more enjoyable for people there seem to be some pillars of what you've said and that seems to be um the that's uh trying to get intense deep work yeah. done in the morning right these may be a more sociable creative time later on in the day yes. the importance of breaks yes. and maybe combined with with sort of sociability is and the importance of yes. getting people together. Um but you do mention one point at one point the importance of I guess some of your previous work, autonomy and breaks. Oh you yeah. Know, that, that, that someone telling you to go on a specific break now actually might be slightly counterproductive. That's
1: what the that's what the research shows. So if we know some of the elements of breaks, we know that and this is important we know that, that something is better than we know that something is better than nothing. Um, But we also know that, uh, as you indicated, that that social breaks are better than solo breaks, even for introverts, sort of a surprise to me. However, those social breaks have to be freely chosen. They have to be autonomous. You have to have a sense of sovereignty over all of it. So if you say, okay, Bruce, you and Jane are going to have a break, and Ed and Marie are going to have a break. You're not, gonna, you're not gonna get those kinds of benefits. And the same thing is, so, so there is this crossover between a sense of autonomy and, and breaks. That is, if we, if we are, I mean in my view, and I think the science bears this out, is that human beings have an innate sense of self-determination, self-direction, and that should carry through to elements of our lives that provide restoration. If you If you have someone telling you, obviously sleep is restorative, but we don't have people uh, once we're past age six telling us when to go to sleep, all right? We have some autonomy over, over that, and so the same thing has to be true with with breaks. So um, we know the general principles: social beats solo, but so you decide autonomously who you want to take a break with. We know that moving beats we know that moving beats um, stationary in breaks, but we're not telling you everyone must take a walk through this path you know, at this particular time. No, you want to have a sense of autonomy and all of that. So, so I mean, lack of autonomy, I mean, you know, lack of autonomy is incredibly, is incredibly draining. And mm-hmm. the whole point of a break is to restore, is, 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 as, a, is a restor, as a restorative. So if you do something that is autonomy thwarting, it's not going to be restorative. What
2: worries me about all of it, there's, um, there's a piece in there where you talk about someone had proposed a reform of a school day. And Governor Chris Christie of, of New Jersey had, had come in and said... Fortunately, now former n- governor. Former, yeah, yeah. that's right. Was a couple of weeks ago. But uh, he, he stepped in and said, that classic thing, the, the equivalent of the 18th century Milona, this is all nonsense. We're not having this. And against all of the Enlightenment and all of the, the research in your work, this... In every office, there's a Chris Christie. In every, in every workplace, there's this often professing to speak common sense. Yes. You know, actually, I'm cutting the crap, I'm speaking common sense. Stepping in and overruling the science. How do we beat the Chris Christie's in the world? You know
1: what, it's really hard. It's, uh, it's, um, it's very hard. I, I believe very strongly that real evidence prevails in the long run. I don't think that's necessarily true in the short run. And sometimes it takes a long time for that to take hold. So I think what it requires is individuals just pushing it on their own, individuals doing the right thing, individu- individuals respecting the science. And over time, I think there's a, there's a, there's a, a, cumulative, a cumulative force. But you're absolutely right here in that, in that one of the... Yeah, I, and I think it could be... There's, I think there are cultural differences here. I think there's a Anglo-Saxon uh, streak of Puritanism that in, in the US, in the UK, in certain parts of Western Europe that, 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 is, that has been captured mentally by that 18th century mill owner who says, you must work all the time, any, any break is a betrayal of your work ethic, of your moral status, and we have to start using evidence to push back on that. In the same way we started using evidence to push back on, on sleep, we started using evidence to reform our diets, um, I think that we can start using some of this evidence to reform. I know for your listeners, really work practices, but it goes even beyond that.
2: Yeah, you're so right. I mean, like sometimes um, when I travel to Spain or France, and I say, "Guys, it's important to take a lunch break," they look at me baffled, like, "Who's not been taking a lunch break?" Right, so. right, right, right. No,
1: there are some cultural differences. What's interesting, though, is that is that in some some of those places are actually learning the wrong lessons from um, hyper seemingly hyperproductive places like the United States. So Spain, about uh, 12 years ago, eliminated the siesta, which isn't an inherently bad idea, but some of the elements of the siesta, which is intentional break-taking, intentional restoration at a certain time of day, is actually pretty smart. It's pretty consistent with the science. This doesn't, the science doesn't say, hey, everybody should take four hours off in the middle of the afternoon to have a giant plate of paella and three glasses of red wine and a two-hour nap. Science isn't saying that, but it is saying that some kind of break, midday, midday breaks can be incredibly important for, again, our productivity, our creativity, and um, as you know, you're so deeply concerned with just our sense of happiness at work Right, I'll do it. sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of paramount plus essential plan on us Mintmobile.com com slash
0: switch upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month face lower speeds videos at 480p active mint customers by five thirty one twenty four get six months of paramount plus essential plan auto renews after six months offer ends May 31st 2024 separate paramount plus registration required terms and conditions apply if rated PG
2: and so so the, the book when just it's just out now um You've, I think it's just an incredible aggregation, like you say, Thanks. of all of these different pieces of research. If, if you're looking at the work, the, the world of work, and you were gonna give people one or two pointers then, so we've covered a, a, l- a number of, yeah. of them here, yeah. but are there any specific things that you feel that anyone at work should be thinking about? To
1: yeah, on? I mean, I think, well, I think one of the keys is to, is to, where you can is to move your analytic work, your heads down, focused work, to your peak, and your more creative, iterative work to the recover. I think that that's going to give you a small edge, regardless. That requires no. It requires sort of figuring out: Are you a morning person? Are you an evening person? Watching your schedule a little bit, but that small alteration in your schedule is going to dial up your uh, your productivity and your, and your creativity. That's one thing. Um, the other thing is, um, I guess, more conceptual in that you know, you, you we need to think. We basically need to take these questions of when more seriously. And so, you know, at the beginning of a project, everybody does, is working in projects. Projects are episodic. You have a beginning, you have an end, and by its very nature, you have a midpoint. And each of those stages exerts a different influence on our behavior and our teammates' behavior. And you need to be aware of that. You can't just say that that doesn't, you know, that's that's a kind of irrelevant factor at all. But you need to know that beginnings have certain properties and certain effects on our behavior. You need to recognize that at the midpoints we sometimes uh, lose interest, other times we spark, and so you have to know, recognize midpoints, raise the salience of midpoints, understand how they work, and then endings too. Endings have a powerful impact on our life in many, many domains from customer transactions to the end of projects to the end of school years to different stages of life and so I guess what we need to recognize is that we are you know temporal creatures moving through time and if you're not aware of that you're going to lose out on some opportunities for doing great work and also being a little happier
2: yeah, I chatted to uh, <coughs> I chatted to Ben Wabber, who worked with Sandy Pentland at MIT, and um, and he was giving a few examples of little things that gave. I mean, in some cases, twelve percent increase of okay. things, which for any business, I'll take twelve percent. Exactly for any yeah. business to get an increase of twelve percent. Of course, often cosmetic changes. And right. so, you know, if you've got a school that's struggling with its results, shifting the start time back oh, an my. hour for for, uh, teenagers, for teenagers is the easiest thing to do. Right? It's. It, I mean.
1: First of all, on that one, like to to me, that one is like the evidence on that is overwhelmingly clear um, that we should be starting school later for teenagers. The American Academy of Pediatrics says that basically every pediatrician in the United States of America has joined forces and said, do not start school for teenagers before 830 in the morning. Then there is a raft of evidence showing that schools that have done this moving, you know, secondary schools that have moved the start time from you know, say 7:45 to 9:15. Okay, not a massive change. See lower dropout rates, higher scores, less obesity, less depression, fewer teen uh, accidents, and it's cost-effective. That one, Bruce, that's not even a close call. That's
2: bananas, yeah, isn't yeah, yeah, it? Yeah, yeah. It's just li- yeah. literally like. It's slightly inconvenient for who? What, school janitors, it's, like it, a few right, teachers? It's, it's, well, it's,
1: hmm, it's con, here's who it's inconvenient for. It's inconvenient for some parents because they want to drop off their Got kids it. when on the way to school. That's exactly uh, what it is, isn't it's it? It's inconvenient, this is maybe a slightly different cultural thing in the United States in that in the United States, secondary school, high school has an obsessive interest in athletics and team sports. And so the coaches want to start practice in the early afternoon. They want to have a couple of hours of athletic practice in the in the early afternoon, if you start later, the school day is going to end later, and practice is going to get truncated. Um, and then we have a whole um, whole system of um, of uh, transportation. So a lot of kids in the U.S. are taking buses, you know, long distances, and so they're you know it takes them an hour to get to school. So. Um, uh, so the, the bus schedules are a complicated factor. of. In fact, once the school superintendent, the school, we have uh, sort of school districts, okay, local districts that run the schools, um, and the, peop- the person in charge of those districts, and sometimes these districts are enormous. They'll literally have hundreds of thousands of students, is somebody called the school superintendent, sort of the key administrator of all of that. And one school superintendent said to me, hey, said to me okay, you're right. You're absolutely right. I mean, the evidence isn't even close. But when I became superintendent, someone gave me this advice. There are three things you never mess with. Bells, buses, and balls. So you're changing when the bell rings. You're changing where, where and when the buses go. And you're changing um, uh, when the athletic practice is. And so those are like the... Those are like the three third rails. You're going to get triply electrocuted if you go near those things.
2: Just because the system pushes back, the conservatism in the system pushes back.
1: But that you know, I mean, any any system, almost every system has inherent in it a sense of inertia, and this particular system has just massive amounts of inertia. It's a it's a it's a giant boulder sitting in, um, you, you know, sitting in this hardened piece of cement, and so it
2: takes a massive force to dislodge it. So you say, you say the reason why you're optimistic is because evidence will win out. In the I, long run. And I think, you know, anyone who's looking to maybe drop a bit of evidence on their boss's desk could do far worse than yes. just attach a post But do you believe ensure, that
1: evidence wins out in the long run? Absolutely. Yeah. absolutely. In the I mean, long run.
2: I'm not, I'm not Pollyanna-ish about it. But Yeah, I mean, look, our feeling was we, we put a website together for our manifesto, which was just science. So, you know, if you're, you know, one of the things we, we say is 40 hours is enough work in a week. And because they, they're... The cult of overwork right. has got very little evidence to support it. But on the flip side, having good rest and good breaks enhances creativity, reduces stress, so it, it produces a, a better long term outcome. And, and our feeling was to say that without evidence is, is meaningless. If you put evidence there, then at least you're in a debate, you're in yeah. a discussion. Yeah,
1: yeah. I, I do think, I mean, I'm, I mean, I want to emphasize the long-run long run aspect of this. But I do think that over time, evidence does win out. You see this in other realms. You see it like what that, in, in smoking. It took a long time for Western societies to change their view about smoking. But I think the evidence ultimately prevailed. Um, it took some amount of time, and it's still a struggle, for the evidence to prevail on something like climate change. But ever so slowly, the evidence accumulated. People began to respect it. And so... Um, and so I believe the same thing, maybe with, I, I believe the same thing is true here, that over time, the evidence about the when, the importance of when is going to prevail. Now, whether that long run is 10 years or 100 years, <laughs> I don't know. But I, in the long run, I really do think that evidence prevails.
2: Yeah. My fear is that you'll just end up with a twin track world. There'll be some wonderful, enlightened workplaces yeah. where the bosses get it, yeah. the company gets it, and it becomes their sort of secret competitive advantage. Mm. And then there'll be a whole load of other places run by 18th century Chris, uh, Chris Christie's yeah. who <laughs> who who aren't enlightened. And unfortunately... So to some
1: extent, that's happening right now. Yeah. I mean, you see very different workplace practices in different kinds of companies. You have the Twitter of the world where they still have founder DNA there that have, basically, that have not inherited a lot of these legacy systems, a lot of these legacy beliefs, and are challenging them based on, on evidence. And so they're, they're going one direction. But I do think that, uh, now the question is, how long can we endure with one group of companies going one way, one group of companies going the other way? Because over time, the companies doing it the wrong way well, could disappear, or anybody with any... Talent or the ability to move is going to move from one of those companies to one of these more enlightened companies So at some level over time the the, the market could begin to take care of that
2: Thank you so much for joining me. It's always a pleasure. Thank you very much If you looked at my life over the last few days, it actually looked quite good. I flew on a plane I ran along the River Hudson. I went to see a musical that people are talking about that was truly fabulous I wore a kilt I danced at a Cayley. Sort of almost, if you you aggregated all of those things, it would look like a greatest hits tape. My life normally involves reading work culture books and tidying up. So there you go. I've had a brief glimpse of what a nice life might be. It's in the can already. Next week's episode is an interview with Daniel Coyle, the author of The Culture Code, previously The Talent Code. I think you're going to love that one. After that, I've got some specials coming up and there's still room for you to contribute. So I'm going to be chatting to, to a couple of people, a couple of experts, a couple of gurus who say that they've cracked the way to improve work culture. And I'm coming at that with a slightly critical stroke cynical Uh, approach so you're going to hear those things and in addition i'm going to different companies and different environments where people have changed their work and made little adjustments to their work to make life better featuring my favorite crisp thursday at one company a company where they they um, invite people to come and taste crisps on a thursday afternoon so there's loads of room. If you've got something that you do at work that is like the ritual you do at work that makes your work brilliant, please, please, please hit me up on LinkedIn or tweet me searching for Eat Sleep Work Repeat. Tweet me there because I really, really, really want to hear it. You can also email me podcast at eat sleep work and I'm always thrilled to see your ratings because basically Apple Podcasts is a racket. You're not meant to say it, but they only promote you up the charts in Apple Podcasts if you receive five star ratings. Don't hate the player, hate the game. Let's overturn this tyranny by giving me five stars. I'm not sure if my power will then allow me to run Apple Podcasts if I get back to the top of the charts. But, I'm but by heck, I'm going to try my best. Eat Sleep Work Repeat is a production of me, Bruce Daisley, on my kitchen table on Thursday evenings. You can hit me up on Twitter, link to me on LinkedIn, and you can see all the episodes on the website eatsleepworkrepeat.fm.
0: Bye!